Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today, I'm joined by Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a science journalist who writes about fitness, health, and endurance sports for Outside Magazine and other publications. His most recent book is the New York Times bestseller, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Before becoming a journalist, he worked as a postdoctoral physicist for the U.S. National Security Agency and competed for the Canadian national team in track, cross-country, and mountain running. In this episode, we discuss the drivers for fatigue. Is your mind or is it your body that's failing you? We also talk about deception and how it's a tactic coaches can use to help athletes push their limits. But before we get started today, I want to make you aware of a unique resource available to you. If you're looking for information or resources to improve your mind, body, and recovery, then sign up for my weekly newsletter, Adaptation. Every Friday, you'll get an email from me where I'll bring you cutting-edge science and tools you can use now to improve the way you look, feel, and perform. Sign up now by going to www.ericcorum.com or by clicking the link in the show notes. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Alex, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the blueprint today. And I want to start this conversation with kind of a... A framework. Let's say I get on a bike, right? I know you're a runner. I hate running. <laughs> I love no. to sprint. I was a big guy. I used to weigh like 270 pounds. So in football, it was like, I'll just sprint 10 yards, but I can get on a bike and I love that. But let's say I got on a bike and I'm not just going to ride for 10 minutes. I'm going to go for a really challenging two to three hour ride. What is really driving fatigue? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try to answer in less than two hours, as, as we were discussing. It's it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's a complicated question, but I mean, I think the the real kind of the crux is that, that a lot of people wonder is how much is in my head and how much is in my muscles. Like, is it? That's exactly what, it. Am, am I? You can subdivide beyond that. Is it my legs? Is it my heart? Is it you know my uh, my my lungs? Or Central, whatever? peripheral, yeah. Yeah, but 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 really, I think for a lot of us, it's like how much of this is just a feeling, and how much of this is a physiological, you know, non-negotiable. I I, I wrote about a study that tried to mm-hmm. quantify this by by measuring a bunch of psychological characteristics and a bunch of physiological characteristics and then having uh these cyclists bike to exa- it was actually biking up an al- a, a mountain in Switzerland and then trying to figure out is it the mental or the physical that determines how how well people can handle fatigue and the number they came up with it was like you know se- I can't even remember the exact number it was 77% physical and 23% mental or something that's meaningless because it it depends on the context but what is important is that it's both and more than that, it's it's kind of the same thing. Ultimately, physical and mental fatigue, it's all being filtered through your brain. Every decision about whether to slow down, whether you can push harder, whether you need to back off, it's, it's happening. All, all the information about how your body is doing and how your mind is doing is being filtered through one sort of central perception of how hard you're pushing. So ultimately, it's, it's all the same thing. And it's about a perception of fatigue, I think. Hmm. Let's just say you were to get the physiological endurance piece out of the way. So there's like baseline for anybody that wants to engage in any specific event. Like my world, I used to train sprinters, right? 200 meters or less. 
Uh, it's a little bit different, but you still have to have some speed endurance because if you were just to totally fail at 100 meters, like it's over with. If you had the uh, physical endurance to endure four quarters in football or run a marathon, like you have the basic requisite capacity in place. At what point, though, does the brain piece kick in? Like, you know, you have the base, so to speak, to be able to compete. What what are the factors in our brain that are pushing back on us? Because I know there's a wonderful story about you running in a, in a meet. And maybe you want to tell that story of kind of how this all came to came to light, where the pacing was different than you thought. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm running so much faster. And then you had this all time PR but, you, you know, people would look at your training records and some would say maybe you were set up for it. Some would say you weren't. But it was kind of like this tipping point in your endurance career. Yeah. I mean, this is <laughs> the background is I was a middle distance runner, uh, you know, a miler. And in my third year of college, I had this race where cut, to cut a long story short, basically, I was trying to break four minutes for 1500 meters, which is a big barrier. And I'd been stuck at the same place for about three years. And what ended up happening is that the timekeeper, you get, you get someone who's giving you your times after every lap. So giving you a sense of whether you're on pace for your targets. And he was giving me the wrong splits. I think he had missed the start when, when the gun fired, he didn't start his watch. And so this changed my perception of how well I was doing since he was late starting his watch. I thought I was having the greatest race ever because he was calling out these splits that were way faster than that, than I was used to. And, and the funny thing is that as a result, I did because I, you know, I got halfway through the race and I was like, holy crap, I'm going to have the, the greatest race ever. And I had a nine second personal best. I went from 401 to 352, which for a, you know, a guy in my third year of university, I'd been training hard for four or five years. It was totally unprecedented. So I'm an, I'm an old guy now. That was that race was in 1996, but it kind of set the trajectory of what I've done as a journalist and, and, and the topics that I've been interested in trying to understand, like, how, how does the physiological interact with our beliefs, our psychology, our, you know, how we're feeling in the environment. In that situation there, you kind of got tricked into running your fastest time ever, in a sense, right? Like you, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm running this much faster. And so the effort, all of a sudden you were able to kind of push past this regulator that may have existed before. Are there ways that we can kind of, we can deliberately train this capability to push beyond what we think we're able to push? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the million dollar question. And I think strangely enough, like deception is actually a really powerful way of doing that. There's, there's a sort of cliche in the running world that the, the best workout you can do is when, let's say your coach tells you to do five by a mile as hard as you can. You do that and you're lying on the grass and then the coach comes up and says, okay, do one more at the same pace. And you're like, there's no way I can do that. That's impossible. And the coach says, well, try, you know, just, just go do what you can. And you discover that, oh, actually I did have enough to do one more interval at that pace. And that changes, that sort of turns the dial on your perception. Now, this is not a very scalable solution to, you can't have someone like lying to you every day to, to, uh, to try and get the most out of yourself, but it, <laughs> but it gets to a more fundamental point about, you, you know, your beliefs really affect what you're capable of. And so I think there, there's maybe a couple points to make. Uh, one is that our ability to tolerate discomfort, our perception of what we're able to do changes gradually. And there's good evidence for this. There's good evidence that over time, if you do hard things, you become better at doing hard things and you learn uh, mental tactics to handle discomfort, to, to handle, to, to be able to push your body to places that you might not have, or not just your body, to be able to push your body or your mind in ways that you wouldn't have in the past. And, and you learned techniques like simple techniques like distraction, like, 
stop thinking about how hard it is or, or change how you respond to a stimulus, right? Like when you get pierced by an arrow, there's the, the, the pain of being pierced, but then there's the pain of your response if you're thinking about how it hurts. So we learn these things automatically by doing hard things. And then there are some, some practices that can help specifically things like controlling your internal monologue. So things like positive self-talk, or not just positive self-talk, but being aware of your self-talk and being being aware of how you respond to challenges and whether you tend to tell yourself, this sucks, I'm going to fail again because I've failed in the past. And so, and now it's it's all starting again. And this one thing that has gone wrong is going to lead to a cascade of 50 other things and it sends you off into a spiral. So so there are some techniques like that that, that sound like a bunch of motivational soft stuff but when you put it in the, put people in the lab and test them you find that it actually works you find that you can stay on the exercise bike 10% longer just from taking some of these simple steps like being aware of your, your internal monologue my friend i don't know if you're aware of dr peter haberl he's a senior psychologist at the usoc it's had a tremendous impact on me and and mindfulness training and, you know, a lot of people think about mindfulness and like, oh, this is relaxation or stress. He's like, no, it's about attention. And he has coined this phrase, attention is the currency of performance. And, um, you know, what great athletes want is they want their attention to be where they want it when they want it. So that when they experience these un uncomfortable thoughts, feelings and emotions, that they're open to it and then they can you know, shift their attention to where they need it. And so it sounds like mindfulness would be like a really good tool for this is, you know, Hey, I'm really uncomfortable right now. And instead of chasing that rabbit and being like, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. No, what can I be doing? Okay. I can feel my feet in the clips. I'm going to push, I'm going to push, you know what I'm saying? Maybe getting back on cadence, just another little anecdote. I, I, I had the privilege to go out and spend some time with the 75th Ranger Regiment. And I was asking one of the cognitive psychs, I was like, Hey, you deal with people that experience a lot of physical pain. Like, yeah. Like, what do you tell them? Like, what's the hack? You know? And she said, I tell them when they're feeling the pain to breathe through their nose and to focus on the, the air passing like literally through the hairs of their nose. And it's like, it kind of like brings you back to this reality. And I do jujitsu and it gets really uncomfortable and really painful sometimes. And in my personal experience, I would just, I started doing this. I would just start breathing through my nose and I would feel that. And I'm like, okay, this isn't quite as bad as I thought. Yeah. I'm getting smashed by this person. That's 50 pounds heavier than me, but I can, I can pursue, I can continue to persist. There was a paper back when I was younger by Timothy Noakes and it was about the central governor and all this kind of stuff. Where have we progressed beyond, have we progressed beyond that? Are we still kind of in that framework? I mean, we believe, we know the nervous system is what filters experience, but is that still hold true? All that stuff that he had been putting out. I know this was 20 years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Before I answer your Tim Noakes question, yeah. let me just jump in and agree with mindfulness as a, as a really interesting technique. And there's some, I, I visited some researchers at UC San Diego who were studying mm -hmm. mindfulness with Navy SEALs and with mm -hmm. elite adventure racers and other people who, and Olympic athletes, people who were at the extremes. And the really interesting thing to me was that mindfulness helps to calibrate. It helps get you in the middle of like, it's not about 
ignoring pain. You have to, you, you, you can't just sort of shut your ears and shut your eyes and ignore what's going on when you're, when you're trying to perform at your best, but it's also not about overreacting to pain. So what mindfulness seemed to help the elite performers do is calibrate their response so that they, their mind was not spinning when things are in a normal situation. And then mm-hmm. when there's a crisis, they're able to stay level. They're aware of what's going on, but not over or under reacting to it. Whereas the normal people under the normal conditions, they'd be kind of asleep. And then when there was a, a crisis, the, the, the way the studies worked is they'd be lying in the MRI, breathing through a tube, basically. And every once in a while, the experimenters would shut off, would, would reduce the flow of oxygen. So it felt like they were suffocating. And the normal people, their responses, their brain responses would go through the roof. They would panic. And then when it went back to normal, they'd kind of go back to sleep. The people who had the elite performers like Navy SEALs were able to stay on a more even keel. They were aware, they were always aware of their body and, and their mind and their feelings. And then when things went south, uh, they were able to just re- remain aware without overreacting. And, and mindfulness training helped move people more towards mm. that paradigm. Anyway, sorry, just a little digression. I just thought that's a really interesting no, that's how, I love how, that. How, that's a great point there with the study. I mean, you're basically not scaling up that continuum of sympathetic autonomic arousal. You're able to regulate and kind of stay in a middle ground. Am I, yeah. am I correct? Yeah, you don't you don't want to be at either extreme. You don't no. you don't want to be bug eyed, but you don't want to be no. asleep. But anyway, uh, regarding Tim Noakes, so Tim Noakes is, is famous for a proposal in the 1990s called the, the the central governor model, which is this the idea that when you reach exhaustion, it's not because your body has failed, because your you know heart's about to explode or your legs are about to fall off, that it's because your mind decides or your brain has decided you're close enough to your limits. We got to shut you down to protect you f- to to make sure you don't reach mm. that abyss and die, basically. And that was that's what really got me interested in this topic is this central governor model. It feels like what explains the story I was telling earlier about my 1500 meter race. It's like my expectation of how close I am to my limits is what dictates whether my brain is going to shut me down. I would say Mm. in 2022, people don't talk about the central governor as much. It's become controversial partially because Noakes himself has, (laughs) has become a very controversial scientist. But the underlying ideas that Noakes and others were developing in the 90s and early 2000s have now become kind of mainstream and everyone, not everyone, but most people accept that that it's not enough. If you go in the lab, you can't just measure a heart rate or lactate levels or something and expect to understand when someone is going to hit the wall. You can't understand that without understanding what's going on in the brain and how the brain is interpreting that. So I would say central governor model is, has sort of been incorporated into the knowledge. And if there's one thing that I would say that listeners should sort of understand from this body of research, it's that your subjective perception of effort is the master key here. That it's not your lactate levels that dictate when you fall off the treadmill. It's your subject. If, if your subjective perception of effort is that I'm trying 10 out of 10, that's the master key. And that is affected by your lactate level and your heart rate, but it's also affected by how well you slept last night. It's affected by what else is on your mind, what your internal monologue is. And so that's how you unite the physical and the mental is that it all influences how hard it feels to you. And that, that feeling is reality. That's awesome. It's really a stew of psychophysiological components where if you if you don't have the baseline fitness, guess what? You're most likely going to bonk out earlier. If you're really fit, but you're not able to regulate your arousal, you may have issues. But it's it seems to me that it's this it's this blend. We haven't quite been able to come up with the perfect formula yet. But there are things, there's these vertical things that are integrated horizontally that are impacting our ability to endure. Is that correct? 
Yeah. And, 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 and let me just add that I hope we never do come up with the, the ultimate formula. Can you imagine how boring sports would be if you could just plug oh, in the yeah. equation and find out who is going to win in any, any circumstance? It's, it's, it's complicated. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I certainly hope we're never going to know everything, but we can certainly know a lot more and we can understand some of the factors that certainly were ignored. Like when I was an athlete in the 90s, there were things that I just didn't think about. We had a sports psychologist working with our, my college team who none of us paid attention to. None of us took it mm. seriously. None of us thought it was important. I look back and I was like, you idiot. Like <laughs> that, that was a huge, huge potential for performance enhancing that I just didn't realize. And I think athletes and people in general are getting smarter about that kind of stuff now. 100%. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Blueprint Podcast. And if you want to support the show, please consider leaving us a comment and review on whichever listening platform you're joining us from, as this is one of the best ways that you can help support the show. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.